Hey everybody, welcome to Stock Bites for Thursday, October 8th. I'm a little late this week. Uh, my son, um, we had to take him up to see his family in Dallas for the first time. So anyway, uh, doing a road trip with a six-month-old is uh, challenging and fun all on its own. You know, a three-and-a-half-hour trip turns into five to six hours, but you get to see some pretty Cool things along the way, stop in some different places that you don't normally, and uh, just kind of take it all in. So it was a lot of fun. While I was in Dallas, I started putting together and formulating this podcast. And of course, so much has happened since I got back. The, you know, President Trump, Dow drops 350 points last night or Tuesday night after President Trump tweets that uh, he's not signing the stimulus bill and today the market's up because we're looking at you know just a, a series of tweets and I'll respond to all that uh, in a later show. I do want to talk to you today about fiscal multipliers and how they relate to presidents and I, I've done some research on uh, federal spending and what it means for the economy I think is pretty interesting. I'm also going to give a beastly update uh, we're having just phenomenal performance. Just looking at the numbers before I came online tonight, and but I'm recording this Wednesday night, and uh, you'll be listening to it Thursday morning. But looking at the numbers tonight, we're up 109 uh, percent on the S&P since we started the basically back in uh, August uh, of this year. We're we're just absolutely crushing it. I'll dive into that uh, in a little more detail. And uh, finally, we're going to run the first half of a wonderful interview that I did with a buddy of mine, David. You've heard him on here before. He's our options guy. I asked him to come on the Money Talks broadcast and talk about his biggest challenge with money. And for him, it was the psychology of money and realizing uh, kind, of, kind of the reverse of what you would think, realizing that money is not as important uh, to happiness and how he came to that realization, when he came to it, and how that has affected his relationship. So this will be a fun show. Uh, as always, you can reach me at george at richby36.com. we got a new Twitter handle for you here. It's at rich underscore by underscore 36. So like and subscribe wherever you're listening to the show. It really helps. And let's get to it. Friday, October 2nd, President Trump uh, was diagnosed with COVID-19, and the stock market reacted poorly. I lost 1% during Friday's trading. That same day, I posted on Twitter and Facebook uh, after market close, asking people why the market reacted that way, and I gave the following context. The iShares MSCI United Kingdom ETF, ticker symbol EWU, Opened March 27th, 2020 at $23.17 a share. It closed that trading day at $23.45 a share for a 1.2% gain. EWU tracks a market cap weighted index of the 89 largest British companies. The reason that I chose March 27th is because it's the date that Boris Johnson, England's prime minister, was diagnosed with COVID-19. And I pointed out the differences in market, rea market reactions 
between two very similar countries when both their leaders were diagnosed with the virus. And the responses that I received on why our market reacted so poorly were interesting from a sociological standpoint. And they got me thinking and sent me down this research spiral that I'm going to share with you today. The thing that I came to are called fiscal multipliers. And fiscal multipliers can be defined as the change in a nation's economic output generated by each dollar of the budgetary cost of a change in fiscal policy. So in other words, and this is all from an American-centric point of view, if the federal government spends $1, how much of that dollar makes its way to the actual economic output of our country? How many times over does that dollar get spent by our citizens? So for example, let's say that the federal government decides to build a highway for the cost of $1. The government pays a contractor or builder to head the construction process. That contractor then takes that dollar and pays an architect and an engineer to design the highway. The, the contractor takes the plans created by the architect and the engineer and pays, a and pays a subcontracting firm to build the highway. And there's all manner of materials and inspections that have to be ordered and performed. You can see how quickly that dollar spirals down the food chain. You know, it's providing work and salaries, food and savings, and a lot more for each member down that food chain. And in fact, the, the dollar spent on infrastructure by the federal government has a 1.44 fiscal multiplier. So for every dollar spent on infrastructure by our federal government, our country generates $1.44 in economic output. Which brings me back to the comments that I received on my initial post about why there was such a dramatic difference in outcomes when President Trump and, and Boris Johnson contracted COVID. And uh, I'm not going to share this guy's name, but he wrote back, uh, it looks like he's shirtless in a hammock, but, quote, because Trump's a moneymaker, if he's out of the game, the market goes nowhere but down. Instead of rejecting the notion immediately because of the obvious bias uh, and lack of research in the response, I decided to research how tied to the market President Trump, and really all presidents actually are. And what I found surprised me, it's commonly held, and I thought this as well, that Republican presidents are better for the stock market than Democratic presidents. And there's this narrative that their drive to cut taxes and reduce government spending is the reason for that. But going back to 1947, which is when official GDP calculations were introduced, the S&P 500 has posted an average annual return of 10.8% under Democratic presidents, compared to just 5.6% for Republican presidents. The nation's GDP increased on average by 3.6% under Democratic presidents, compared to 2.6% for Republicans. The difference in these performance numbers can be explained by fiscal multipliers. Republicans aim to stimulate the economy with tax cuts and deregulation. Democrats aim to stimulate consumption, and thus the economy, with redistribution policies like increased unemployment benefits, increased child tax credits, and food stamps. So I'm going to read you some of the fiscal multipliers for common federal uh, spending. Increased food stamps, 1.71. 1. 
Every dollar that the federal government spends on an increase in food stamps leads to a $1.71 increase in economic output for the country. Extended unemployment benefits, 1.55. Infrastructure, like we already mentioned, 1.44. Child tax credits, 1.38. At the very bottom of this list are income tax cuts at 0.35 and corporate tax cuts at 0.32. If a tax cut leads to a 1% decrease in tax income for the government, it boosts economic growth by 0.32%. In other words, a tax cut would have to have a five times it would have to be five times larger than increases in welfare spending to have the same economic output. The Congressional Budget Office, which since 1975 has produced independent analysis of budgetary and economic issues to support the congressional budget process, backs up these statements, saying the following in a February 2015 report called the Fiscal Multiplier and Economic Policy Analysis in the United States. Quote, Economics literature often makes a distinction between tax and government spending multipliers and frequently finds that the spending multipliers are larger than tax multipliers. To understand why, consider two changes in fiscal policy, one to increase government spending and the other a cut in taxes, each with a budgetary cost of a dollar. The increase in government spending immediately contributes a dollar to aggregate demand, but the tax cut or alternatively, an increase in transfer payments, could contribute less than a dollar because it can be spent or saved. The marginal propensity to consume can be less than one, end quote. So we know, you know all about the president's, uh, President Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. It drastically cut taxes for the wealthiest individuals and in all corporations in America, and we've talked about companies like Netflix and Amazon that paid $0 in federal income tax. Fiscal multipliers show that these cuts don't have a drastic effect on the economic output of the country. They certainly reduce the income that the federal government collects every year. I'm going to save this topic for another episode, but we're on a path to having our debt-to-GDP ratio exceed 200% by 2050. That's a very scary topic, and I'm sorry to, to leave you there on a cliff note. I'm going to come back to that in a future episode. But, you know, we, we commonly think that by cutting taxes on corporations and wealthy individuals that they'll make more money, they'll have room to hire more people, which stimulates output for the economy. While it's true for an extent, we've just seen that it's not the best use of federal spending. Tax cuts for individuals and corporations only have a point. 3.5 and a 0.32 fiscal multiplier on economic output. And I, I think that economic output, output should be the focus of the federal government. Republican or Democrat, the goal of each party is to take care of our citizens and to stimulate the economy to provide stable employment and opportunities. As the economy grows, corporate earnings grow, which lifts stock prices. But the two parties go about economic growth differently, and history has shown us that social programs and infrastructure have a much greater effect than tax cuts. Trump recently released his proposed federal budget for 2021, 
which includes a lot of cuts to social programs. $1.5 trillion in cuts to Medicaid over the next 10 years. $845 billion in cuts to Medicare over the next 10 years. $25 billion uh, in cuts to Social Security. $220 billion cut uh, to SNAP, commonly referred to as food stamps. $21 billion uh, cut from Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, a cash assistance program for the nation's poorest people. And $207 billion in cuts to the student loan program. Now, the, the president's proposed budget, is it's just a proposal. Congress controls the purse strings. However, President Trump, you know, this tax plan shows us that he's more concerned with deregulation and tax breaks and not boosting social programs, the things that will actually have the greatest effect on our economic output. And I'm not telling you to sway not telling you all this to sway you one way or the other. I just like to educate you. Uh, and this person who, without a shirt sitting in a hammock who decided to tell me that Trump is the market. It, historically, it's not true. And look, if Joe Biden is elected, it's not going to signal the end of our economic expansion as many Republicans seem to think it will. Yeah, he's going he's gonna to raise taxes on top earners and corporations, but that money will be redirected into social programs that actually have a greater fiscal multiplier. They have a greater effect on our economic output. The market will react poorly for a few days, but market participants will move on and continue to invest. There's, there's really no alternative. Where else are you going to put your money? Bond yields are at historic lows. People still need a place to grow their money and to meet future goals. And this, the, the rise of the day trader that we've seen during COVID, that's not going anywhere either. If President Trump is reelected, you know, the, the market will jump for a day or a week, but then it'll be business as usual. And the effect of his reelection will, will wear off. And, you know, the, the tax breaks will continue. The deficit that we're operating under will continue. Social programs will be cut. And the effect of these policies on our economic output will, uh, is what's, it, it worries me. And, but, but again, we're, we're all going to move on investing. So either, either way, the market's going to continue to rise. Anyway, I, I'm sorry to get political here, but I'm going to move on here and, and give you guys an update on the Beastly, something I'm super proud of. This is our stock newsletter. We send it out every Monday morning. There's three trade ideas. We use fundamental analysis to tell you what to buy and why you should buy it. And then we use technical analysis to tell you where you should sell it. And since August 17th, when we sent out our first three picks to subscribers, we're beating the S&P 500 by over 109%. Some of our biggest winners uh, of the last two months have been Nike, Crocs, Canadian National Railway, Bandwidth, Chegg, and Amazon. For you subscribers who are actually listening out there, Zillow and Owens Corning are about to hit our upside targets. We recommended uh, selling your entire Owens Corning position once the stock hits $77.50. It's currently sitting at $75. Zillow is a little bit of a different story. The stock has been benefiting from monster macro tailwinds in real estate and has received some very positive price target upgrades from large investment banks over the last couple of weeks. So in our September 13th issue, when we recommended Zillow, we recommended that you take some profits 
once the company hits a, uh, 108 per share. It's currently sitting at 105.51. We had a second upside target at $138 that we still see as likely, but I'd recommend taking some profit and then leaving some in the position so you can capture that second upside target as well. Last week, we actually had our first realized loss in the portfolio as well. State Street, a large asset manager, hit our downside protection stop-loss order, booking a negative 14.41% return. And hitting our downside target means that our investment thesis was proven incorrect. We got our money out of the position to reinvest elsewhere. And I'm extremely happy with these results. Again, we're up over 100% since we started this newsletter. The downside protection works, and this is proof of it. And we're getting our subscribers into quality companies with defined risk and reward targets. So today, we've only had two of our record, to date, only two of our recommendations have actually had negative performance. State Street, which actually hit its downside target. We recommended that on September 7th. And DR Horton, the largest home builder in the country, which we recommended in this week's issue. So it's only been a couple days. It's down about a percent since we recommended it. If you want to get on board the Beastly train, head to richby36.com and click the first link on the homepage for the Beastly. We're offering your first two weeks for free. That's six trade ideas. See if you like the content. See if you like the trading strategies. And when you do, the newsletter is just $30 a month moving forward. That's $2.50 a trade. Again, we're up over 100% on the S&P since inception. That's including negative 14% return from one of our picks. So that's pretty good if you ask me. Now to close, I'm going to run the first half of our latest Money Talks blogcast. This episode dives into the psychology of money. How old were you when you realized how important money was in your day-to-day life? What did you do when you realized it? How has this changed your outlook on friendship, work-life balance? That's all included in this episode. For the second half of this interview featuring my conclusions and takeaways, head to richby36.com and click on the Money Talks Blogcast tab on the top of the page. This episode is titled The Psychology of Money. Uh, On the Money Talks Blogcast tab, you can run the full podcast and you can read the blog beneath it with hyperlinks to several of the the resources discussed in the second half of the interview. So that's going to do it for today. Again, a big thank you to Eric Mason for hopping on the pod with me last week to discuss the Federal Reserve. I'm definitely going to bring Eric back sooner rather than later. And with all this uncertainty around the stimulus bill, uh, it looks like the Fed is going to have to take, they're going to have to do something here. I also think that Eric might be interested in talking about fiscal multipliers, just a hunch. Uh, So again, thank you, Eric. All right, uh, here's the interview with David Nasser on the psychology of money. All right, David, thanks for joining me on richby36.com. When we spoke earlier, you told me your number one challenge with money was adjusting to its importance in day-to-day life. Can you tell me more about what specifically you mean by that and what specifically you're struggling with? Well, sure. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Um, So I guess... I kind of struggled about kind of realizing how important money is to people, but, you know, because like, if you, if you really think about it and I was talking to my, um, my girlfriend Annabelle about this earlier, it's like money affects so many parts of your social aspect that if you don't 
stop and think about it, you're not going to realize it. Like, um, I think you and I, we both grew up in well-off situations, you know, growing up in the neighborhood that we did. And, you know, I, I've had a privileged life and I went to a very privileged high school and most of my friends come from privileged backgrounds. Like almost every aspect of my social life was influenced by the amount of money that my dad had. And he worked hard for that money. And I don't think money is inherently evil, but I think it's wise to kind of step back and realize what kind of effect it has on your life and kind of like, um, you know, how it affects your relationships with others. And that's kind of my struggle with it is like, I wish it wasn't this way, but it is. And I'm not sure how to fix it. What point, how long ago did you start having these thoughts or come to this realization? Um, it actually not very long ago, like almost, I'd say like a year, almost two years ago, like at my, um, my first big boy job, I was a registered nurse at, you know, St. Luke's hospital, you know, down the road from where we lived. And, um, they were recently bought out. They were, they used to be owned by like the Episcopalian church itself. And the church ran it more like a service instead of a business. So they weren't necessarily concerned about, you know, how much it costs to their detriment, I guess it's all a fine balance. And so they were bought out by this other company, a private company um, called Catholic health initiatives. And their name sounds great. Like they're super charitable or something, but they're not Um, literally one of the first things they did when they um, bought out St. Luke's was they started initiating like all these cost saving measures. Um, It's all about the money to them, like the dollar figures, but, some of these measures were, um, you know, getting rid of a lot of very well-seasoned nurses, like nurses with tons of uh, knowledge, just technical knowledge, like theoretical knowledge, institutional knowledge, because they were being paid a lot for that. So they basically let them go and then hired new nurses that they could pay for less. But what they kind of didn't see um or maybe they did and they chose to ignore it for the money was the, the, uh, the value of that knowledge that left the hospital when they did that far outweighed any amount of money that they saved. And it kind of got me thinking like, um, why, I guess they just, they care about the money too much, like the dollar amount. And then that kind of had me, that kind of got me thinking about, the effect of money on my own life. And then I kind of thought more about the social impacts, but that's really what got me started. Like, I think they willingly, they knew about how much knowledge they were letting walk out the door just to save a few bucks comparatively. And it really just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but I guess that's how everyone does it. (laughs) What's changed in your life since you've come to this realization? Um, What's changed in my life is I kind of, I'm kind of more of aware of my socioeconomic class, I guess, or status. And I'm kind of, I'm trying to make a more conscious uh, effort to kind of see value in things that aren't money, like value in people, value in other aspects of life that don't have anything to do with cash. 
you know. Yeah. Can, can you give me some examples? Well, sure. So, um, I mean, these, these are really like big ideas and stuff, but, um, you know, let's, let's talk about the postal service, I guess. This is a really hot topic in politics right now. Um, a lot of people think the postal service should be, you know, turning a profit, right? They don't see the value in being able to send a letter from like Florida to Anchorage for the same flat rate that we could send a letter from Houston to Dallas. That's incredible. And it's all like paid for by taxes. And it's a service that we use as a public, like as a people. But, you know, there are some that want to get rid of it because all they can see is the money. They're not seeing the value that it's giving back to us. But I think the postal service is worth every penny that we spend on it, you know, compared, you know, value of the money versus the value that it returns to us. So I think, um, yeah, that's one big example, like countrywide example, but I guess in my personal life, um, you know, seeing things, you know, like with my friends and stuff, like I have a really solid core group of friends in Houston, even though I'm living in Boston right now, but I've kind of realized like they're really special. And like, there's, <laughs> there's no amount of money in the world that I would trade for these, for these, my bros, you know, or, you know, in my personal relationships with like Annabelle, there's, there's, there's so much there that's not quantifiable in money, you know, value that you couldn't get for money, even if you tried. So yeah, that's kind of, I don't know if I was going off on a tangent there, but <laughs> no, the, the postal service is, is not the postal company. Yes. It's a service. Right. It's, it doesn't matter if it makes money or loses money. It's a necessary part of our society. And that should be the end of that discussion. <laughs> but some, but there are some <laughs> that think it should make money. And it's such a wrong way to think about it. Right. I agree with you. And then, you know, on, on the flip side of the coin, you're, you're realizing, and I'm trying to, to summarize here, and I may be speaking for you, tell me if I'm right or wrong, but I, you're realizing that, and you've had personal experience with a company being bought out, that there are parts of American society that value the dollar above all else. And, and it sounds like you have a dilemma about what, what the consequences of that are if it's applied in the wrong place. Like healthcare, for example, should be, I get it, you got to turn a profit, but uh, you know, at, at the same time, you want to have, if I'm going into a hospital, I want to have the most experienced nurses and doctors available. I don't want the people who are yes. just the cheapest, right? So there needs to be some sort of balance there. And, and that, that kind of trickles down into your, into your everyday life as well. Am I, am I on the right, barking up the right tree here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think the CEO, I'm sure like the CEO, his name is like Doug Lawson. Um, for CHI, at least the Houston chapter of CHI. But like, I don't think he under, I don't know, like I, I'm 24 and he's like, I don't know, 50 or something. And he has way more experience than me, but I don't think he, I don't think he knows the consequences of letting all that knowledge leave or worse he does. And he just doesn't care. Yeah. It, 
Yeah. Because there were some accidents that happened at the hospital after these changes. Um, but I can't talk about them. I mean, some of them were public, but there were. And, you know, I don't want to, maybe I don't, I don't want to reach or anything, but I think it's definitely related to the institutional knowledge leaving the hospital that mm-hmm. these mistakes were made. Yeah. And we, we weren't in those boardrooms. It's, it's not like we can speak for him. Um, yeah, you know, maybe the, maybe the legal liability was worth it for the bottom line. I, I, I can't yeah. say, David, if you could give yourself, you know, your, your 18 year old self heading off to college, if you could give him advice about what we're talking about, what would you say? I think the, uh, like in school, I guess in my younger life, <laughs> it was, it was, it was kind of funny. Like I always, I, you know, that question, like, I don't know if you asked your dad this, but like, I always asked my dad how much he made and he never told me not once. He never told me, um, how much money he made in a year. And the reason I wanted to know that was because I was stressed out because I knew eventually I would have to make money and to afford the same life that I've had growing up, I would need to make at least as much as him. Right. And uh, that's what I thought. But what I realized later, I wish I wish I could tell my younger self not to worry about that and instead worry about your relationships with people and your friends and stuff like that. Don't worry about the money anymore because, you know, I was through college. I was reasonably sure I was going to be able to make enough to make a living. I should be worrying about, you know, my friends, my relationships, my parents you know, relatives, everything like that. That's way more important than money ever was in hindsight to me now that I've thought about it. So, yeah, you're, you're leading me right to my next question here. How has this uh, realization and these experience, how has that impacted your relationship with your friends and with your loved ones? I think, um, I think, it's, I think it's, I think it's made me, uh, less, it's funny, like less stingy almost. Like I'm not afraid to spend money on my friends or my, you know, my parents or my girlfriend, Annabelle and stuff like that, because I know they're so much more important than the money. Um, so that's kind of, I don't know. I, I could, I guess I've kind of shifted focus in my life. <laughs> That's really interesting. Stuff we can, yeah. Been, and I guess, you know, I, I don't think money's evil. Like you obviously money, you need money to live. Um, but I think your priorities have to be in the right place. Have you done any research on the psychology of money or the psychology of capitalism? Not, not like any academic research or like real research about that or, or anecdotes by professionals in in that field. But I don't know. I just think it's kind of, because like, I don't know, in every society on earth, money is really important. You need money, but imagine that like, I don't know. And now I sound like John Lennon. Imagine if there was like a world without money, like what, (laughs) like, you know, like, what what would that look like? There'd be a lot less skyscrapers. Yeah. yeah, and I think 
you know, we all know about Andrew Yang and one of his policies, like, you know, universal basic income. If you give everybody the amount of money they need just for the basic stuff in life, what are they, what are people going to start putting value on when everyone has the means to live decently? I think people will put value on like the, the person much more than they are today. I don't know. I think, I think money is a huge distraction, but I understand why people need it. You know, I'm not naive about that, but I guess it's, I'm in a privileged place to be able to say that, that it's a distraction. Yeah. And you just opened up a whole nother can of worms. You have a five month old son and there's a show on Netflix called babies. And I may or may not be telling you something (laughs) that you, you don't know, but they, they did these studies over decades and they found that that infants uh, and babies who have their basic needs met. So they're, you know, they're not spending time crying about being hungry or being scared or being lonely. Those babies tend to develop mentally and physically much quicker than babies who do have to worry about basic needs, survival. And yeah. to, to say that that I think it's it's very easy to say to just extrapolate that to all humans. You know, if you're having to worry about day to day issues, you know, how am I going to put food on my table, pay my rent, etc.? It stifles so much other development and creativity in your life. And, and we're getting into you know we're we're getting into huge issues here, like solving yeah. poverty and world hunger and stuff yeah. like that but um anyway it's yeah, a very interesting discussion david do you have any last comments for us before we get you out of here uh uh <laughs> putting me on the spot i don't i don't know i guess just try not to worry about the money if you can yeah, that's, that's great advice. Well, thank you for joining us today on richby36.com. Well, yeah, thanks for having me.